Thank you all so much. Um, I will read our passage once I pull it up here. Okay. So our scripture comes from Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 through 11. But I laid this to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for, their memory of, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever, they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol or the grave to which you're going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor the riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happens to them all. This is the word of the Lord. Um, let me pray for us. God, your, your, your word, your gospel is your power and it changes everything it changes our hearts and so would you just help me serve city church this morning and help me uh speak clearly from your truth not my own opinions or my own uh interests or my own sin and bless your people as they hear the young and the old. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So let's go here. We'll get started. Um, so you started a series in Ecclesiastes. Um, I love this book. It's the blues of the Bible. Um, and it's blues in the sense that it speaks truth that comes out of deep sorrow. And it's also really, really true. It may not be a truth that we want to face, but it is sobering. 
but within that sobriety um, that is often pretty harsh, uh, even as we've just read, there is a hope, there is a hope um, and there is delight. Um, and the book, and it's because the book is built around this. Um, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, is in the first chapter of the book and the last chapter of the book, as I think Kevin looked at last week. But the word vanity um, does not mean meaningless. It means vapor. It's the word hebel. And the Hebrew word hebel means um, ephemeral mist vapor. It means it's short. It doesn't mean it's meaningless. It's, it's almost like on a cold day or a cold night when you can see your breath. It's just life is fleeting. Um, and it's mysterious. And you can't stop it from being fleeting and mysterious and vapor. Um, my favorite commentator on the book of Ecclesiastes was a man named Stafford Wright. And he said, life has lost the key. In Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes is telling us, life has lost the key to itself. But we can't unlock it. So things like oppression and injustice and suffering and goodness and joy and love that we experience in this life, all of them have been stained by this fallen reality that is ultimately summarized in our inevitable death. That's what vapor means, short. And we cannot get leverage over the vapor because life has lost the key to itself, except we have in Jesus, Stafford Wright tells us, in Jesus we have the outline of the key. That is, we have a great hope. And so charged right through the very middle of the book of Ecclesiastes is an assurance and a certainty of God's sovereignty. There is this, this bold assertion that we live in both a vain and uh, often vapid and fleeting and an unjust world that God is completely in control of. And he's at total work in. So we have chaos and comfort side by side. I believe the book of Ecclesiastes gives us the ability to live in paradox. And without living in paradox, that is God's sovereignty and the chaos that we experience even right now at this very moment. The chaos, um, sovereignty and chaos need to dwell together in the mind of a Christian if we're going to be bold. And in our sermon today, I want to focus from this passage because basically that lens of chaos, comfort, you know, God's sovereignty and uh, vapor, both of those things, that's the that's sort of the guiding principle, um, uh, the lens that you look at this book. And so I want to look at at two things today. What do we live? How do we live in a world of chaos that God is sovereign in? And we don't really know how he's at work oftentimes, maybe most of the time. But we do have great comfort in that. We are to be people of, that rest in his hand. That's point one. And then people who reach out for life. And then so what? Resting in his hand, uh, in, the, in the vapor, right? Resting in his hand. 
and then we reach out for life. And so I hope this will be an encouragement to you. I need to add um, that I think just for context, I'm actually preaching uh, this sermon in the home that I grew up in because I'm back in Little Rock uh, with my mother, my dad, because my dad has been in the ICU with COVID for five weeks on a ventilator. So I'm very raw right now. And um, I need this sermon really bad. So I hope, I hope we're all blessed by it. So what does it mean to rest in his sovereign hand? Um, it means to rest. Listen to what it says. All of this I lay to heart by examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know both are before him. Resting in his hand. So the meaning of hand in the Old Testament, there's several places that the Old Testament word hand is translated as power or might. Uh, we find it like in Joshua chapter 8, verse 20. It's used as a symbol of power in Psalm 31, verse 15. Um, and to drop one's hand was a sign of weakness. And often, you know, we, we, the right hand is a place of power. The right hand is right hand. So this is all throughout. This is so... When, when you hear the writer of Ecclesiastes use the word hand, he's, he's pulling all of this from what uh, the rest of the Old Testament meant by hand, God's power, his sovereignty. All of it is in the hand of God. Um, the one who fears God, the one, and for us, and as we see the, the clearer picture now, even through the person of Jesus, which was opaque in the Old Testament, is now clear clearer through the lens of Jesus, all of our deeds, everything, all of our life is in his hand under his care and his supervision. We don't know the future, whether it's good or whether it's bad. Love or hate, they, they await us. We don't know when. This means regardless of what happens tomorrow, whatever we're facing, the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, is in his hands. So God is not just a, a life coach uh, kind of come alongside us. It means everything that we experience must be allowed or permitted by God's power. There's tremendous mystery in that and tons of tension because the, like he says in, the, in this book, there's, there's evil. How, how, how do we make sense of that? Well, God's not the author of evil. But he clearly allows it to happen for his own purposes. We know that he overrules evil, but we know that he used evil uh, with the cross, the most evil thing that ever happened. The, the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, even if you didn't believe that, even if you don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, he was the kindest man, right? The gentleman who died. It was, his death was unjust no matter how you slice it. But God used the cross, the chaos and the, the horror of the cross for eternal life. Do you see it's in his hands? This is the way the Bible talks about God's people. My time are in your hands. Psalm 31, my time, my times are in your hands. Jesus said, no one can snatch them out of my hand. In John's gospel. So the, this is not a temporary state. This is an eternal state, past, present, and future. 
the hand of God is not like a church building or a school or some other building or a house. It's not like a vacation home. It's not like a college campus. Those are places of a temporary abode. We're in them and then we're outside of them. But, but everything that happens to us, everything that happens to you, happens to you out of union with Jesus. That the child of God is forever in his hand. Rest. Rest in what is already true about you. Faith means resting in God's hand. That means resting your anxious thought in God's hand. Or in 1 Peter, we're told to cast our cares upon him. How do we express resting in God's hand if it's not just a constant throwing? And that word casting means to to hurl, to throw a heavy weight. That the, the life of a Christian, especially now, is to be a life of constant open-handedness. Because we rest in his hands, we open our hands. Our hands that are so clenched. Oftentimes, our hands are so clenched, white-knuckled with anger, ready to put our hand through someone or something to open those hands of rage and worry because we rest in his hands. And the way we do that is through prayer. Um, and he also says something too that's interesting. It's another component of this rest. Listen to what he says in verse seven, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. God has already approved of what you do. And uh, this is the closest that the teacher of Ecclesiastes comes to the doctor, our doctrine of justification. That is the central piece of the gospel. That means the moment that God sees you in Christ and accepts you in Christ, you're totally, completely validated, justified, declared righteous once and for all. That means he sees you as, as perfect as Jesus himself. You have his resume that you accept the righteousness of Jesus. That even though you are unrighteous, you're righteous in Christ. That the forgiveness of sins means more than just being forgiven. It means that you can come in the total acceptance of God, the peace with God. Romans 5, you have peace with God, even though you have chaos inside your mind and heart. The gospel of justifying faith, this is what one commentator says, means that while Christians are in themselves sinful and sinning, yet in Christ and in God's sight, they're accepted and righteous. That's what he says. God has already approved of what you do. He approves of what you do. We call him Abba Father. And we're falling apart too. Totally scared, freaked out by everything that's happening and totally safe in his hand, totally approved. We're in his loving hand. This is what Richard Loveless, who wrote a great book called The Dynamics of the Spiritual Life, probably 40 years ago. Um, he said, justification and adoption is hard to believe. It's hard. It's difficult for us to believe that it, God's unfailing love is real. Satan will cast up to us the sins both in the past and the present. He will allure us with temptations to sin, which we may fall to when we may fall to where we may fall in the future. He will lead us to question the reality of our relationship with God. Can we be God's children after all such thoughts lurk in our minds and our deeds in our past? He says, how do you answer these kind of temptations? 
It's by the recollection that we're the children of God, not by worth or merit, but by free and gracious adoption. God loves us and he's chosen us. Yes, you right now. He, and, and his hand is still on us and we are still in his hands. Think of Isaiah 49, verse 16. Our name is etched or graven in his hands. That's an eternal reality. I think of that great hymn before the throne of God above. Where at the last it said, I think this is the last stanza where it says, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue, no tongue, not yours, not your peers, not your past, not the devil, no one, no tongue can bid me thence depart. That's how safe you are. So we rest in the gospel. We rest in our adoption, our acceptance. So what does this have to do with with fear and vanity and, and, and vapor and chaos. What does this have to do? Here's what it has to do. The hardest thing to do as a Christian is rest in God's power and love. I'm convinced of that. Tell me something else that's harder. It's hard work to rest. But that's what life of repentance is calling us to. And to wake up in the morning and before your feet hit the ground. Renounce self-reliance. Self-reliant people are racked with fear and anxiety because they're responsible for their life. They have to make life work for them. And it's a crushing burden, burden, and it's a paralyzing fear. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. I'll give you rest for your souls, a yoke that brings rest, is in his absolute sovereignty, Jesus Christ came into this world, into the vapor, and he died and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again, and his resurrected body has no hint of vapor on it. He came down below our chaos and below our doom to bring us up to his heaven. No tongue can bid me thence depart. Don't we need this now so much more than we've ever needed before? Rest in his hands. Now, as we rest in the security of God's love in the midst of chaos, in the midst of mystery, and in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of injustice, we rest in his hands. We have something to do, and that is we reach. But you can only reach out for life if you're firmly rooted and resting. You have to be really anchored. You have to really be anchored into something secure in order for the boat not to move when the waves come. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And folks, do we not? I mean, how much have we been, been shown that the life that we've been, our work, our jobs, our economy, our health, our country, our political system, our democracy, it's all sinking sand. But on Christ, the solid rock I stand. Now we can reach, which is our second point. We reach in the face of a future and a death that we can't control. That's what he's saying. 
look, he goes back and forth and he talks about all the things that have happened. That, that he talks about how good things happen to one person that doesn't deserve it and bad things happen to another person. And it's just bananas, right? This, the raid, the, he, he sort of sums it up when he says that the, the, the race does not go to the swift or to the smart person, right? So he says this, go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with, with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with, do it with your might, for there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave to which you're going. That's a wake up. That, hello, good morning. You're going to the grave. It's a command. It's an imperative, actually. Go, go, eat, and drink, because you're dying. <laughs> Listen to what um, one commentator said about this uh, on, in Ecclesiastes. The believer must give himself to a contented life and to a joyful life. And the basis of his contentment is that God has already approved of him. The believer is not struggling for acceptance. He's already accepted. Now, go. As you rest in God's acceptance, go. And isn't it interesting that he says, go eat and drink? That's really something that's very unique about the book of Ecclesiastes. That the commands really are to fear God, to obey his commandments, which are commandments to love God and love neighbor, which is summed up, as we know in Jesus, sums up the table of the law. To go and love, to go and eat, to go and drink. The command, what, what the bride of Ecclesiastes gives us to live is really simple. It's really basic. Go eat your bread with joy. It's, he does not advocate hedonism here. Right? Definitely. You could definitely take it that way. But that's not how he's intending it. He says, enjoy thing in, in, the, in the shadow of his wings, the shadow of the wings of God. So you enjoy the good things. That I think it's a call to be present in your life. To slow down and realize that like that bowl of oatmeal that you ate this morning is from God. And to not look past it and the butter that you put on your toast and the coffee in your cup and all the good things is to live a life present with gratitude. That's what that means. With joy, with merriment, because he's, because there'll be days that are not joyful. And there'll be days that you can enjoy maybe a glass of wine or a pint. If that's you, if that's what you want to do. Um, and your life is falling apart. That's the paradox. There was a boy in our neighborhood growing up, just down the street from where I am right now, who was never allowed to eat any candy in his house. His parents were super strict uh, about a lot of things. And so when he came to my house, it was like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory because my parents had, my mom had candy and cookies and stuff everywhere and bagel bites. Their bagel bites, don't ask me. Um, 
But I remember he used to take that candy that we wouldn't even eat and wouldn't like. And he would, he would, he would sneak and find it in a drawer and he would sneak and he would go eat it under a table in secrecy in shame. And we were like, what in the world is he doing eating that candy over there in that corner? Is because he ate it with guilt. God created food and wine. God created these things. Life is really, really short. And this is a, a tangible something that you could put in your mouth and know that God is good in the midst of a world that is nuts and crazy. It won't fix your life. It will not fill up the emptiness of your soul. It is vapor like everything else, but it's good. But it's not holy to hate food, and it's not holy to hate things that are good. It's not holy um, to hate sex. Uh, in fact, this book will tell you it is something to enjoy. The things in this life are things to enjoy because they are echoes of Eden, as Lewis would say. It's not godly to just walk around miserable, withholding, and not enjoy this good creation. Jesus enjoyed this good creation. His first miracle was making water into wine. Because God approves of us, we reach out for life. And one of the ways we reach out for life is the thing that's sustaining our life. Bread. And that's uh, to, reach out for life in the, to reach out for life in the face of death. That's what the white garments are. The festive garments. Put oil on your head. Those were comforts in the ancient world. So do those things. Dance a little, laugh a little, even when your heart is breaking. It's a different message, isn't it? I don't know how else to live. I don't know, honestly, right now what's going on in my life, realizing that my dad is so sick that we could get the bad call any day. I don't know how I, how I could exist any other time uh, in any, during this time. I can't imagine uh, that I've been able to laugh till I cry with my mom and my brother. Um and truly laugh and enjoy meals together and then get a phone call from the ICU. Sometimes we just let fear do all the talking, but we're to reach out for life. And he talks about that also in companionship. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life, he's given you under the sun because this is your portion in the toil at which you toil under the sun. He used that word two different times. Toil, a sweater your brow. We're going to toil. Life is hard. Work is hard. And that's what he's saying. Reach out for affection. Give affection and receive affection. With the wife whom you love, who's as imperfect as you are, and the husband that you love, who's, imper who's as imperfect as you are. An active quest for enjoyment and the good thing that God gives us. That's a command. Marriage is a gift to us in a world that is broken. In a vain and fleeting life, that's what he says. That means vapor. He's calling us to look at marriage from the perspective of the big picture of life. Life is short and it's hard. And we're broken people married to broken people. And we are a dis disappointment to each other. And we hurt each other. But if you spend all of your marriage complaining about what's wrong with each other, you're going to wake up one day and, and it's going to be over because one of you is going to be gone. If you spend all your time thinking that your spouse is the problem with your marriage, and if they would just change, then your marriage will be better. And come on, we're not all, those of you who are married, life is too short not to enjoy the one God has given you. You're as annoying as they are. 
future is coming. Death is coming. And your cold war will only make life shorter and more bitter. What does it look like to forgive? What does it look like to go to counseling and get some help, learn how to be a communicator? What does it look like for you to repent and realize that you're contributing to how bad your marriage is? How many times have I heard someone say and a tragedy is hit when that person's finally gone? They say, I wish I would have had the chance to say how I really felt. Say it now. Say it today. Say it again tonight. Say it again tomorrow. God has given you today and people for you to love today. Forgive. Why? You've been forgiven. He approves of what you do. I think marriage has done anything in my life has helped me not take myself so seriously. Stop waiting for that person to complete me. Love the one you're with, as the old song says in the 60s. And then work. Go work. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. There is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave to which you're going. Whatever God, whatever gift God has given you. Some of that work can be demeaning and toilsome. That word toil. Sometimes you don't like, a lot of us don't like our jobs. And no job is perfect all the time. And some of you really hate your job. Some of you are looking for other work. Some of you lost your work. What does it mean to work with whatever God's given you, his gift that he's given you? It may be an actual occupation where you're making money, where you actually go and work in an office. It means in the life that he's given you today to use your gifts and your skills, that, that word hand, whatever your hand finds to do, that means your strength or your ability. That God's given us all strengths or abilities, and some are really public and some are private. Some are more, uh, some, some are working with the ground with our actual hands. Some are working with people. Some are doctors, some are teachers, some are mom, whatever you're doing, moms, dads, whatever he's given you to do, do it with all your ability. And he's like, just try. Remember T.S. Eliot says in one of his poems, uh, uh, the, the four quartets, he says, um, all we're to do is try. The outcomes are out of our hands. Try. For us, it's just to try. So it's like trying in our work. To find means to seek opportunity to work, to give yourself, give yourself to work in your life with joy and its responsibilities and with how discouraging it is and how hard it is to do it with all your might because you won't be able to do it eventually. Thought and knowledge and skill and wisdom is encouraged. And here's what he's saying. So what? Resting and reaching, what does that mean? It means that since we're united to Jesus, since we have the hope of the gospel, we've actually already conquered death in Christ. And since we've conquered death in Christ Jesus, even though we will physically die, we have actually moved from death to life. And our life is hidden with Christ in Colossians 3. It means that we can live in a world not trying to figure it out all the time. We can live in a world where we are learning, learning how to give up control, learning how to surrender to his love. That we begin to be people who live really small lives in the best kind of way, really present. And I have to say, in closing, 
that, but tomorrow is MLK Day. And I lived in Memphis, Tennessee. And I actually got to meet Reverend Billy Kyles, who was actually on um, the, the balcony the day that King was assassinated. I was a pastor in Memphis, and I got to meet and spend a day with him. And he told me about it. I mean, what, what actually happened there when he saw Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King Jr.'s blood. And how heartbreaking it was and how chaotic it was. And that a man who taught nonviolence, who was thrown into prison and had dogs chasing him, who was just treated so horribly, who died so violently, so publicly, April 4th, 1968, taught nonviolence. I think that is such a good summary of, of what it looks like to live in the kingdom. To be people who preach nonviolence in a world of violence, people who preaches, who people who teach and work out justice in a world where we where some of us will die so unjustly. There's nothing just about COVID. That we are people who laugh even as we cry. To reach out for life means to be like the ICU nurses that I talk sometimes three or four times a day with my dad, that are talking about my dad. And I try to get their names and I ask them what their names are. Camille and Mackenzie, Aaron, Dr. McCracken and Dr. Imran. When I talk about these people, what they're doing, they're reaching out for life because they're taking care of a man who means so much to so many people. And I asked him yesterday because they have to, they have to turn my dad. They, they spend, he spends 18 hours on his stomach and then they put him on his back. And so every day they have to turn and my dad's not a little guy. And so I asked the nurse yesterday, I said, when you say you'll flip him, what does that mean? You turn him, how do you do that? And she said, it takes four of us to do it. And we do it with all of our ICU patients. One person holds a trach and then one person holds the lines and then two other people make sure every, all the sheets are tucked in and they turn them together. I started thinking about that's really a great application of people reaching out for life for a man who can't live without a ventilator right now. What does it look like for you right now to love the people in your life that just so desperately can't do it? The least of these. Maybe it's your teenage son right down the hall. Maybe you just need to sit with him Go on a walk. Maybe you need to make a meal for someone who just lost somebody. Maybe it looks like moving out and talking to people who are so different than you. How can I possibly talk to someone who supported Trump? Or how could I possibly talk to someone who, 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 who supported Biden or whatever, on whatever side? What does it mean to, to take the message of Martin Luther King Jr. to rest in Christ? as broken people and to reach out for life. It means to love the people in embarrassingly simple and concrete ways. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time to be able to preach the gospel. And I pray that it would encourage the people at City Church as they're looking for a new pastor and that you will prepare that person and prepare this church to be continue to be a bright light in the city. In Jesus' name, amen.